Welcome to David Gogo's Soul Bender podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections from a life on the road. Yes, from the secret underground lair high atop Gogo Mountain, home of many Christmas trees, I'm Scott James. He's David Gogo. We're talking about album number one in the uh, the long, long, long go-go journey. How did you decide? When did you decide, hey, I better do an album? Are we speaking about the eponymously titled debut? Wait a minute, I have to look up a word here. <laughs> you never hear that word yes, eponymous <laughs> anymore. Self-titled. Yes, we are. <clears throat> Well, that was a funny thing. I mean, I was always just a, a musician. I, I really enjoyed playing music, um, especially at gigs, but whether it was jamming with someone or, or doing an actual show. Uh, you know, making an album was kind of not really a priority when I first started out. <clears throat> we just like rocking. Although at one point we did decide to, to roll tape, literally, um, in Nanaimo at the Commercial Hotel, which is where we played even before the Queen's Hotel was happening. And just record a live cassette that we could sell at gigs. We just thought, you know, might pay for gas money and maybe get a new set of tires for the van eventually. Um, but that was just, you know, just rolling tape in our, in our, during our performance. And um, maybe there was one original song. The rest were just blues tunes that we were playing at the time. When you say roll tape, you're talking literally because uh, this was the late 1800s and there was no such thing as digital back then. That is correct, sir. Yep. In fact, I believe that the mobile truck we used to record the, the, our live cassette, he was actually running beta. And I'm wow. not even joking. Wow. To record. But beta was actually high quality. Um, so rather than, than using spindles of uh, two-inch tape, you know, um, which was expensive, you get a, a not bad, a pretty good, pretty good quality off the beta. Better than VHS, actually. Yeah, exactly. So, that, that, yeah, that was the first, the first format. But then I guess it came time to, um, you know, I had this band uh, I was playing in called The Persuaders, and, and we did some cool stuff, and we were gaining a bit of a following in Western Canada, and we started getting the attention of people in, in the music industry. And How old were you at this time? I think that band started probably like I was around 19. We were all around 19 years old. Yeah. So heading into 2021, that's when we started go, you know, touring in Western Canada for the first time, and... Yeah, we started to, to turn a few heads, and, and people were interested in what we're doing. And so that, it was almost at the suggestion of people who wanted to work with us as, you know, are you guys working on an album? And that, which was kind of the furthest thing from our mind at the time, I think. Especially because um, I, wasn't, I wasn't writing. No one was writing in the band at all. You know, we were just having so much fun discovering all this great blues music and... Um, coming up with their own versions of those songs and playing them for people. So, in fact, I remember years later, some guy came up to me and he goes, you know, I remember when you guys first started playing and uh, I, I just loved your band and then I got this record by a guy named Albert Collins and he was playing all your shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not the way it is. <laughs> it was actually, we were playing his shit. But, yeah, so, so then I guess that kind of became a thing, like maybe we should start thinking about writing songs. Not the easiest thing to do. Especially within a blues genre. I think Stevie told you to, to get busy on that at one point, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, and, and by Stevie, we mean... Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. <clears throat> but he, I think he was the same way. He was just having so much fun playing other people's music. That, But if you want to do your own thing, then you have to kind of carve out your own identity. So that 
means, writing songs and, and, and you know, becoming your own person. So it took a while because I, I think I was a little, just a little shy about it, you know, and, and I'd never done that before. So I tried doing some co-writes, um, which I did when I was younger. I, I sat down with just some kind of, you know, Nanaimo musicians that were friends. But it's it's kind of a it's a funny thing it's it's a real personal thing to sit with someone and try to create something like that especially if you don't know them that well. Um, if you don't like the direction it's going in, it's kind of difficult to say to someone, "Hey, I think where you're going sucks. <laughs> we should go more in my direction." And I'm sure they felt the same way with me. So eventually, I started being courted by some uh, different management. I did work with. Um, well, right, right in Victoria here, um, you know, we started playing Harpo's, the, the legendary Harpo's nightclub. And one of the owners, Gary Van Buskirk, who was basically in charge of um, booking the entertainment, said to me at one point, you know, your band's doing great, but you guys got to start playing Vancouver and stuff. I know this guy, Frank Wipert, he might be able to help you out. So Frank uh, was fabulous. You know, he, he, he checked us out at, at, the, at the town pump. I think we opened for... John Mayall or somebody like that, and he came down to the show, really liked it, and he started booking us shows. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I'd kind of flirted with management, but once, I think I think kind of the, the, the one of the turning points was a fellow named Mark Norman. Mark used to promote concerts in Victoria, um, and I met him the first time I met Stevie Ray Vaughan. That was his first show that he did on his own. He ended up taking over Periscope concerts in Vancouver, so I think when he was still with Periscope, we'd kind of been in touch. And, you know, we were selling out clubs like the Town Pump and, and things like that. So he said to me, what do you think about playing the Commodore? Well, that was daunting for a bunch of young guys. Commodore's a big room. The Holy Grail at that time. Absolutely. The fabulous Commodore ballroom. But he said, I, I have an idea. He said, you know, we'll get a couple local openers that are, you know, that draw a little bit. And we'll call it a low-dose show or something, and, and we'll try it out on a Saturday night. And we actually sold out the Commodore Ballroom. <laughs> and, you know, we had a couple of hot shots opening, like I say, but um, that was kind of the turning point. And I believe my dad had read some kind of an article about a, a man named Alan Gregg. And Alan, his kind of claim to fame was he had started a, uh, a political polling company called Decima Research and was very successful with that. Um, but he started getting into rock and roll management. So he teamed up with a guy named Jake Gold, and they had formed a company called the Management Trust. Well, their big client was a Tragically Hip, and they started signing other people. My dad, I think, <clears throat> wrote him a letter or something and said, you know, my son's this great player, <laughs> like one of these crazy dad things. <laughs> so Alan actually came out to Vancouver, and I think he I, – I, I can't remember if the first time I met him, but he came out for that Commodore show. So he just went, who's the – you know, there's this – a bunch of kids playing a blues band selling out the Commodore Ballroom. So that's when things kind of took a pivot. And um, it kind of got serious. And, it, and it, was, it was strange because, you know, we were just these young guys that were just used to going out on the road and playing blues bars and having fun and having a couple of drinks and talking to girls and stuff. And also there's, there's big highfalutin Toronto management coming into the thing. And next thing you know, they've set up a... Uh, a showcase. I think the Junos were in Vancouver that year, and that would have been, oh heck, when, you know, early '90s or something. And they set up a showcase, and all of a sudden, there's all these record companies showing up at our at our, at our little gig, and uh, we're just playing the blues. We don't know what to do, you know. Next, you know, there's some kind of a bidding war. Well, I I wasn't really set up for this. I didn't know what was going on, and it was difficult at the time because 
you know, um, you know, I worked with Frank, who was booking us shows, and, and Frank's a real character. You ask anyone in the music business, Frank's a character. But next thing you know, I've got uh, the San, Sam Feldman agency sending the two Steves over. We call them the two Steves, and they want to be my exclusive agent, but I'd have to get rid of Frank. Big decision to make, but it seemed like the right one to do. So I had to go break up with Frank one day over a bottle of Shivas Regal. And now we've got this highfalutin Toronto management. Well, Dave, of course, you got to come out to Toronto. Well, we're all BC boys. We're a little reluctant. So it just started from there. All of a sudden, it came from, I won't say it was just a, like a hobby or anything. We were all very serious about the music we played. But all of a sudden, people, big-time people were interested in, in what we wanted to do. And it, it got serious. How much money did you make on that Commodore gig, by the way? Uh, well, it was a low-dose show. <laughs> as it was advertised. Um, I think we did all right. I mean, I, I think an official sellout at the Commodore is 1,000 people. Yeah. So we must have done all right. But, I mean, Mark Norman, it was kind of like, it was his kind of little, he wanted to see if he could pull it off. Yeah. I think it was a challenge to him as a promoter. And we did it. So I, I don't remember the numbers. I just remember just being absolutely elated that we could do mm-hmm. that and 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 um and you know we're trying to play i mean it's such an awesome room to play i've been lucky to play on that stage many times and uh but you know every time i've ever played there except that one show was opening for someone whether it was albert collins or the beat farmers or johnny winter or george thoroughgood but uh to do it on your own and you realize there's no one on after us we got to deliver the goods that was kind of that was the crazy part of it so you came off that and you decided, uh, well, I better write some songs if I want to get an album done. And uh, what occurred after that? Well, then it was kind of tough because the fellows I was playing with were all good chums and that, but no one really seemed to want to get together and write songs. So I started thinking, well, I'll, I'll do it, you know. And it was difficult at first, but then I kind of realized I had to take the bull by the horns with the whole project and I th- at one point I decided you know that, that you know and, and this is just my opinion I'm sure the boys in the band have a different opinion but um I thought you know I kind of have to put the focus on me if I'm going to be the guy you know like kind of steering the ship here and, and and starting to write the songs so instead of being called the persuaders one day I decided to call it David Gogo and the persuaders <laughs> and that didn't necessarily uh float everyone's boat <laughs> <laughs> in the organization. But I just felt it was it was something I had to do. And at one point so so yeah, so we get we get um wined and dined by some record companies. Um I decided to go with they were still called Capital Records at the time. They eventually became EMI Music Canada. But I just went, The Beatles. The Beatles are on Capital. I'm gonna sign with Capital Records. <laughs> and I always dreamed of having you know, the vinyl with um that 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 rainbow logo, you know, and see my name. Unfortunately, before my first album came out, they had switched from Capital to EMI, and then uh, didn't print vinyl anymore. But um, I started writing with different people um, wherever I could. The rec- you know, so we so we signed a deal with, or I did. I signed a deal. It wasn't the band. I signed a deal, and I tried to keep the band in with me. And they said, "Well, we'll see. We're signing you. We're not signing the Persuaders." So, it, 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 you know, it's that really difficult decision I had to make where it's like, well, what do I do? You know, are these, are these boys with me or are they holding me back? I don't, I don't know what's, what's going on. So I phoned a couple of people I knew in the business because it's before emails. 
and asked her advice. And one friend of mine in Edmonton told me, she said, you know, I've seen this happen to other artists. And if you try to, you know, stay with the buddies and, and, and it doesn't happen, you're going to blame them for the rest of your career. You're going to say, you know, I tried it. You know, you guys held me down. I could have done this and done that. I could have soared like an eagle. I mean, at the end of the day, I only made one record with EMI, so it, it kind of didn't really matter. But um, it came down to that difficult thing. So I signed a management deal with the Management Trust, which was Alan Gregg and Jake Gold. And that was one of the first meetings we had was Jake and I had to sit down with the guys in my band in a hotel room in Vancouver and basically tell them that uh, their services were no longer required. And uh, once again, mixed, mixed emotions in the room. <laughs> Every 
There's Soul Fever from David Gogo and his band The Persuaders. One of his early tunes included on 100.3 The Q's Rocktoria 2 Canadian Talent Development Initiative album in 1990 and which showed up again on the Halfway to Memphis album 11 years later. So here you are. You've cut the band loose. You've got your finger up in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. What was the next move? So then it became a thing of... Um yeah, trying to learn how to songwrite. So I was sent down to Nashville and Memphis and a couple different places. And I didn't really write a lot of songs at that time, but I met some really interesting people. The first time I was in Toronto and I had a meeting with uh, with Jake Gold and a guy named Hank Medros. Now, Hank um, was a guy, he showed up and he, he, he was dressed fairly outrageously, like... Uh, you know, he's he's, he's a, a guy from New York that's been in the business for a long time. He was, he was wearing kind of a pinstripe suit, but it was, it was almost candy cane colored, you know. <laughs> and it ends up, I, I, I should have done a little more research before, but I remember Hank had produced some Tony Orlando and Dawn albums and things like this. So he'd been in the business for a long time, and I had his respect, but he was still kind of of an era. But anyways, he said to me, he goes, I saw you play, I've listened to your songs, you're a blues guy. I got a friend, Al Cooper. He was in the Blues Project, and he played with Bob Dylan. And, you know, he was one of the first guys I met in New York that was into the blues. So this isn't Alice Cooper. It's Al Cooper. So if people know Al Cooper. Um, yeah, he's the guy who played the Hammond organ on Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. Cooper with a K. That's right. Correct. And um, I think one of his first gigs was he was a co-writer on This Diamond Ring for Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Oh, wow. Along with Leon Russell, of all people. <laughs> But uh, he says, Al's living in Nashville. You should go hang out with Al. And so, okay, I'm just this kid, you know, and I show up and go to Al Cooper's house. And, and we hit it off really well. We didn't really write anything, but it was just cool to hang out with a guy like that. I mean, he's, he was playing me, um, this is before voicemail. It was still an answering machine, but playing me his answering machine, answering machine messages that he got from Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh. And, uh, you know, pictures of him and Jimi Hendrix. He actually had a, a Fender Stratocaster guitar that Jimi Hendrix had given him because Al played on the Electric Ladyland record for Jimi on a, on a track. And Jimi wanted to pay him. And he says, no, that's cool. You don't have to pay me. And Jimi says, well, I've got to give you something. So he just reached and gave him a guitar, wow. which Al kept for many years before he decided to sell it and buy a new house or <laughs> whatever with that guitar. <laughs> but Al was just cool because... Um, we, you know, we talked a lot about recording and the process of songwriting and, and um, you know, he was best friends with Mike Bloomfield, the great guitar player that had been gone for a long time. And, and yeah, like they, they, they played on these seminal albums with Bob Dylan and hung out with Hendrix. I mean, so that was, that was super cool. Um, I wrote with a couple other guys down there too. Uh, you know, their names escaped me at this point. But like I say, I was kind of shy. I, I wasn't really sure what I was doing. But I was kind of getting the feel of, okay, this is like... I guess it was kind of the business side of things I was recognizing, along with the artistic side. So I went down again, but this time was to Memphis, and I'm trying to remember. I was supposed to write with, I was supposed to go to Austin and write with Doyle Bramhall Sr. Now, his son, Doyle Bramhall II, uh, ended up being in the Archangels, and he's gone on to play with Eric Clapton and all sorts of people. But his dad was a great songwriter that wrote with Stevie Ray Vaughan. And there's a woman named Ann Forbes. And Ann was associated with EMI somehow. And she said, you you got to meet Doyle. you got to write with Doyle. For whatever reason, it, it never worked out. But I think through her, her second suggestion was that I go down to Memphis. And at the time, 
a fellow named Bobby Whitlock was living there. He was actually living in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which isn't far from, from Memphis. But Bobby Whitlock was the keyboard player in Derek and the Dominoes with Eric Clapton on the Layla record. And he played with Delaney and Bonnie and people like that. So this was another one of these crazy trips where I just went down as a young guy. Bobby Whitlock picks me up at the Memphis airport, and we go to Holly Springs, Mississippi. And he was... He was enjoying life at the time, shall we say. (laughs) I was going to say stone. (laughs) He was one of these guys, you know, he'd been a rock star, you know, and and he was in a different place, but still kind of had rock star tendencies. So we hit it off. I really liked Bobby and ends up we had the same birth date and everything. And, but he was a wild man. He was like, he was a wild man. We drove around in his pickup truck and, um, he's drinking beers. I think at that time you could actually you were allowed to drink while you were driving. That was a there. national sport back yeah, then. I yeah, but you, like actually, seriously, in Mississippi, you you weren't allowed to be drunk, but you're allowed to drink. Mm-hmm. So you know, drinking these uh, Budweisers or whatever. And um, he was just kind of like just just telling me all these wild stories, you know, about you know um, he he played on All Things Must Pass with George Harrison because yep. you know they're all chums with Clapton and. And uh, they go for these big rock and roll dinners, and they draw straws to see who's going to pay for the dinner. Mm-hmm. And he said Donovan was always the guy who lost. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like buying Ferraris and wiping them out on the English countryside and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but he was a cool dude. But also he's had this real southern thing as he grew up there. I think he was the first white artist signed by Stax Records. And Stax is the famous Memphis label that had Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and... Irma Thomas and Rufus Thomas and all these people. Um, Booker T and the MGs. So Bobby, you know, grew up with all, a lot of the, you know, because back then in Memphis, race wasn't a thing when it came to music. Like Booker T and the MGs, they were half black, half white. It wasn't until Martin Luther King was assassinated that, that all of a sudden, you know, shit hit the fan and they realized, okay, there's some differences, but but Bobby, like I say, Bobby came up from that soul background, but a real country boy. I think his dad might have been some kind of a preacher. So there's 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 always that going on in the South. There's so, like the, the weird dichotomy between religion and 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 letting it all hang out, you know. Um, so we often just... often done by the same person, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we, but we just did crazy stuff. Like like he he goes one night he takes me down. He he tried to play the part of the redneck, but I knew he wasn't. And uh, I remember one time we went to this this little pool hall to get a couple of drinks. And there was this young kid. They called him Champ. So he comes in. He was allowed to come in the pool hall, even though he probably wasn't legally allowed to. But he was this wicked pool player. So it was called Grouchy Jim's, this pool hall. Because <laughs> Grouchy Jim was the nicest guy you could ever meet in your whole life, right? And he had a Gretsch guitar with a Gretsch amp behind the, amp, uh, behind the, the bar. And every once in a while, he'd, just get, he'd turn on a microphone and go, Okay, everybody gather around. And he'd play Hank Williams songs for you. Oh. And you'd have to go to the bar and watch him do his Hank Williams song. And then you go back playing your pool or whatever you're doing. But Bobby says, you know, introduce me to Grouchy Jim. And he says, yeah, we thought maybe Champ had come down. He goes, well, you know, Bob, I heard that Champ's been, he cussed in front of his mama the other day. So Champ came in and opens up his pool cue case, starts, you know, spinning the pool cue together. And Grouchy Jim calls him, Champ, you better come over here, son. What is it, Jim? Is it true that you cussed in front of your mama? And he looks down. The kid looks down. 
Look at me, boy. And he looks at me and goes, did you or did you not? Yes, sir. Well, you know, champ, I'm going to let you shoot one game because I got this boy here from Canada and wanted to meet you. But after that, you got one week off. You can't come in. And it was just like this heavy southern thing, you know. So I'm sitting there kind of half drunk watching, and Bobby Whitlock kind of, he's got his cowboy hat, and he kind of looks at me and he goes, Hey, David. This is pretty fucking surreal, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I love it because he was like, he was digging it. Like he was digging this whole Southern Gothic kind of, but he was also like way hip. It was, it was so strange. That's on so a many song levels. being born right there. Oh, it could be. We should have written yeah. it, I guess. Yeah. Well, we did write a song called Sold Me Down the River, um, which I know there's a, a hit that with that, but this is way different. And it's funny because I really, we actually demoed it. And I, I wanted to record it for my first album, but EMI was all reluctant and, I think Bobby ended up recording it anyways, but I didn't somehow get any songwriting credit on that one. <laughs> it was just one of those mysterious things in the music business where sometimes songs show up and people forget. But but Bobby, uh, we actually went into Memphis one day to go into Sun Studios, the legendary Sun Studios where Elvis made his first recordings. And someone had bought the rights to the label. Um, Sam Phillips wasn't involved at the time. But we went to the original studio and kind of like went in the back door. First thing Bobby says to the guy, can we get some Heinekens or what? So we're drinking Heinekens. But the guy wanted to revive the label, wanted to revive Sun Records, but just have Memphis artists. And Bobby was a obvious candidate, but I don't think he was any, in any condition at that time to do it. But it was cool because, you know, we're just sitting behind the console as, you know, I came in through the back door sitting behind the console in Sun Studios. And I thought, I think I'm going to take my Heineken and just kind of walk through the room were Elvis and Johnny Cash and Howlin' Wolf and Jerry Lee Lewis and Ike Turner and all these guys recorded because the, the room was virtually unchanged from the 50s because I, I think the studio closed for, for a while in the 70s, but for some reason no one ever bought it or rented it, so it was never renovated. It wasn't turned into a Chick-fil-A or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyways, it, this was just hanging with Bobby. So it's like I said, we, we did write a song, but... It was more the experience and hanging with these guys, getting ready for the first album. So that's when you get to the point, you go, well, where should we record the first album and who should be the producer? So at the time, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan had just done In Step, which I think was his last album he recorded. And um, I, I was asking about studios in Memphis, and the name Ardent Studios came up. And Arden is another legendary studio. And so I went down there and had a tour. Um, and, yeah, so, th- so the guy who produced the Stevie record, Jim Gaines, so we set up a, uh, um, not only a visiting session at Arden, but also met with Jim Gaines. And I talked to him, and he said, man, I'd love to do this record. This would be great. Um, so I remember feeling really confident that that's where we were going to do this record. It's Arden Studios, legendary studio in Memphis, with Jim Gaines, who had just produced Stevie Ray Vaughan. But then EMI, they were so crazy. They're like, no, 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 no. We got to make you more modern. We can't just have a, uh, you know, some blues record. And I might add that the next record Jim Gaines produced was uh, Supernatural by Santana. (sighs) Yep. (laughs) So when they said uh, we got to make you more modern, what was that all about? More accessible mainstream is what they were saying yes um which i understood to a point but you got to understand like 
I was a blues guy. So I said, okay, well, let's try to compromise. So one record I really liked at the time, and I mentioned Doyle Bramhall earlier, was um, The Archangels, produced by Little Steven. So you got Charlie Sexton, Doyle Bramhall Jr., and then Stevie Ray Vaughan's rhythm section. And it was a cool record. Very bluesy, but also contemporary. Got a lot of FM airplay. So I kind of came to EMI and said, well, maybe we can do a record like this. And the, the head of A&R at the time says, no, here's the record I want you to make. And it was, um, I believe it was The Four Horsemen. Do you remember that band? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I listened to it and I thought, are you kidding? Why would they not be talking about this kind of thing before this point? Well, as, as, as far as their expectations go. Well, good question. Thank you. <laughs> and here's here's the weird thing, and, and I might have mentioned this in one of the previous podcasts briefly, but it got to the point where I thought, why did they sign me? You know, like like the Four Horsemen, God bless them, it sounded like a, like a poor man's ACDC. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why the hell do you, why would you even think that that's got anything to do with, with, with what I'm doing? I don't mind not being the blues guy. Side note. Right after they decided I shouldn't be the blues guy, then you get Johnny Lang and Kenny Wayne Shepherd yeah. coming out. Yeah. I, I could have been a year ahead of those guys, you know, um, easily. But they, just, they decided not to go that route. I started to really question as I started, you know, like, 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 what are we doing? And I thought at one point, I thought, am I crazy? Am I going nuts? Like, why are these guys making me be something I don't want to be? And unfortunately, years later, I found out that the head of A&R, and this is no judging or anything like that, but he actually was having some serious mental problems and, in mm-hmm. fact, had to take a leave of absence for those mental problems. So the feelings I was having, am I going crazy? Well, maybe it was him, you know, which was unfortunate because, like I say, I was a young guy. I'm trusting my management to be kind of the in-between people with the record company. And um, it just seemed like we just kept treading water and backpedaling and just like, it was just like, what are we doing? Let's just make a fucking record, man. Like, I think we should have just gone into the studio when they first signed me, hired the hottest blues rhythm section in, in the fucking world, gone down to Memphis, made a record in a week, put it out there. And just say, here it is. Here's the guy. He can play the fucking guitar. Uh, here, you know, and, and, and then for the next record, then you start working on the other stuff. But... I didn't know. I mean, I, did, I didn't have the experience. Here's that, my advice. Huge mm-hmm. lawsuit. <laughs> well, it's all over now, baby. Good Blue. luck with that. <laughs> yeah, they don't have any money anymore. Yeah. And unfortunately, with management at the time, the, uh, the, the one manager, um, it was really unfortunate. His beautiful wife got really extremely ill, and he kind of dropped out of the scene. And the other guy was had to take over all the other acts. So he's busy with bands that are actually making money, like the Tragically Hip and stuff like that. So... It was a really, really frustrating thing because I'm trying to make this, you know, trying to decide how we're going to make this record and there's all this crazy pressure and I'm still trying to, you know, they didn't want me to do any gigs and that's my only income source, but they're like, no, 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 we got to wait till the record comes out. So I'm sitting in limbo for like a year, year and a half. It was... So you got no producer now. What's next? Well, we start trying to make a compromise and... Geez, there was one other guy, too, that actually came up. Oh, oh! so my other suggestion was Eddie Kramer. Eddie Kramer produced the first couple of Jimi Hendrix records. He also 
uh, was a great recording engineer. He was, like, I think the main recording engineer for Woodstock uh, in the 70s, produced a lot of records for a variety of... Well, he actually engineered some of the Led Zeppelin stuff, ended up producing, like, um, Carly Simon and all the sorts of crazy things. So I just, I don't know where I said, well, you know, I'd kind of, you know, I like Jimi Hendrix, maybe Eddie Kramer. So they actually, <laughs> Eddie Kramer flew up from New York and I was in Toronto and we had a big rock and roll dinner, but same thing. I just got the vibe from the record company. It's like, oh, we're just, you know, I think they were just trying to say to me, okay, we'll fly this guy up. But I could tell by the end of the dinner, like they weren't into it at all. And they kind of left me with Eddie Kramer. I'm like, well, you take Eddie out and you guys can maybe have some drinks or something. And, oh, but we got you some tickets to go see Prince. So there I am with with the blue credit card <laughs> that I had at the time, you know, with the with the you know nine hundred dollar limit or something. Like, what you're just gonna? Like, they bought us dinner, I guess. But so we, we we went to Maple Leaf Gardens to go see Prince. And at the time, you know, I I, I wasn't sure about Prince. I thought he was just this greasy little guy. But wow, well, he blew me away that night. But Eddie says to me, "This guy, he almost reminds me of Hendrix. Like he's just he's just so amazing." And so <laughs> there I am with. Jimmy Hendrix's producer. We ended up going down to the Horseshoe in Toronto, getting a boot shine, having a couple of drinks, and finally he said, "Well, let's go back to my hotel." He goes, "There's a rooftop bar at the Plaza," and we went up there, and he had a, a like a little like a Sony Walkman, and he was playing me these cassette tapes he brought for me to listen to of Jimmy Hendrix um, recording his first vocals for his first album. Mm. He was making mistakes and laughing and telling jokes. So it was kind of cool, and we got along. And he turned me on to uh, a drink called a Kir Royale. Just champagne with just a splash of creme de cassis. So we had a good time, but the same thing the next morning was just like they had poo-pooed Eddie Kramer. Now, Epilogue, a Quinn Martin production, about two years ago, I was in doing a show in Scarborough, just north of Toronto there, and of all people, Gatto shows up, Greg Godovitz. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hanging out with Gatto, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, actually, I was, after the gig, I was supposed to, it was a Sunday matinee. I said, I was supposed to go into Toronto and, and stay with a friend of mine. But he got called into work, and uh, I'm actually just going to you know, probably find a cheap hotel somewhere. And Gatto says, well, why don't you come to my place? You know, we'll have a, a, a dinner. And, and tomorrow, he says, he, he had been given a gig. It was, it was someone in the Dragon's Den, one of the Dragon's Den people. I don't watch the show, so I don't know. Decided to buy the old El Macombo building in Toronto which is a legendary nightclub where the Rolling Stones recorded a live album and all sorts of stuff. And Stevie Ray Vaughan actually did uh, uh, that much music special. Anyways, the guy from the Dragon's Den had hired Gatto to kind of be the curator. He wants, to, he wants to make a Toronto music museum, and he wants Gatto to collect all this memorabilia. But at the same time, he said to Gatto at one point, how come I can't get the Gatto albums on CD? And he said, well, I'd have to remaster them from the vinyl. It costs a lot of money. He goes, well, I'll pay for it, but I kind of want to, you know, make a recording studio too. And who would you suggest? So he suggested Eddie Kramer. He said, Eddie Kramer did all the Hendrix stuff. Oh, let's get him. So Gatto says, tomorrow we'll go down. Eddie Kramer's remastering all the old Gatto tunes. So we go down to the studio. This is 20 years later, 25 years later, right, of when I first had dinner with Eddie. So we go to the studio, and we're, we're listening and, and trying to be polite because he's working remastering the Gatto stuff. And then finally they take a break, so I reintroduce myself to him. I go, Eddie, I don't know if you remember, but 25 years ago, uh, EMI Records flew up here to Toronto. We had a steak dinner. We went and saw Prince together. And then we went up to the Plaza Hotel, and you turned me on to Kier Royale's and played me some Jimi Hendrix outtakes. And he looks at me, and he goes, can't quite place it. <laughs> he goes, 
The Kia Royales kind of ring a bell. Could you provide more details? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that was my second choice. <laughs> Which is re- re- just redonkulous. I need to backtrack a little bit. Uh, number one, how does one get a credit card with a $900 limit? Because I aspire to that. You know what? My sister used to do that. She'd, she'd only allow herself that yeah. much. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I always say if I ever won the lottery, I'd pay off a couple of my credit cards and then mm-hmm. go from there. And, and uh, when you're writing a song, are you writing for your vocals and the keyboards and the guitar and the drums and whatever else is going on there separately? Or how does that work? Well, when I first started writing, it's it's different now when I write because... With, you know, technology has changed. So when, if I go on the road, sometimes it might just be a line, like someone else, like a lyric. I'll say something, or someone else will say something. Well, that's great. So I get the old iPhone out, plunk down that word. But you've also got the voice memos now, so you can get a melody idea, and you just go, you'll sing like that, or whatever. Back in the old days, it was a lot more difficult. But I never had anything in mind. There was never a set pattern for me. I, I never wrote lyrics first, or melody first, or chords first and I really didn't think about the, the instruments I mean now there's some songs my last album that I did uh, 17 Vultures was probably the album I spent the most time doing the demo tapes which means writing a song recording them at home as a demonstration of what you're going to play to the band when you get to the studio and I'm really glad I spent all that time because there's, there's a couple songs where at first I thought there'd be a full band song and real, I realized, no, it'd be better, just acoustic guitar, vocals, and maybe some upright bass or something. So I've never really had a set pattern. Uh, it's, it's just you kind of take the inspiration. So nowadays, I'll go, you know, I'll go on the road for a week or so, then I get the old uh, cell phone at, at, at the end of the week or whatever, you know, Monday or Tuesday, and have a cup of tea and then look at the lyrics I've written down kind of edit those. Well, this is pretty good. What the, what the hell was I thinking when I wrote that one? You know, like some of it's just bullshit, you know, you don't know. Drunk. <laughs> no, drunk can, can be some good stuff. Sometimes you, you, you think you're you're much more poetic um, as you're driving and you realize it's just shite. So you kind of have to edit yourself. And then uh, then I'll go through the musical things, like any kind of melody ideas. So it's it's much more a form of editing now and kind of sifting through various ideas where I th- whereas I think when I first started writing I always thought you had to sit down and write an entire song from soup to nuts but now it's just more like no let's just you know get, get a couple ideas and, and, and then if you, if, you, if you decide to do a co-write you can show up in a room with, a, with another writer and say okay listen here's a, you know, a couple lyric ideas I had and a bit of a melody you know what, what do you get from that and that works that, that, that can be cool because it, maybe the lyric you had that you were thinking was going to go in a certain direction uh, theme-wise, they'll go, no, no, I'm hearing this. I'm hearing a whole different thing. So that can work as a collaboration. So will it, would a drummer write some drum parts then? They claim they do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and bass players claim they play bass. <laughs> um, well, that's always a funny one, too, with that. I mean, well, I came up with the drum parts. Did you? <laughs> But the drumming's interesting. I mean, with the recent passing of Ginger Baker, I always loved Ginger Baker's drumming, but as much as I love his drumming, I always thought, thank Christ he wasn't the drummer for the Beatles because he would have tried to put all these crazy drum parts over everything, whereas Ringo just played for the song. And thank God he did. It worked for Cream, though. 
Well, that's the thing. Yes, that was a whole different thing. Yeah. I, in fact, I went and, well, when we start talking about the actual recording of my album, we'll, we'll, we'll bring up some Ginger Baker. Ooh. What do you think of uh, Elton's and Bernie's method of uh, Bernie, no, how does it go? Yeah, Bernie writes some lyrics, mails them to Elton, Elton writes a song. It mystifies me. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea how that works. Um I find it very bizarre, but obviously it's, it's been extremely successful for those guys. It works for them. I can't imagine writing like that. Right. I, I, I've done, like, like with, with my Vicksburg Call album, it was interesting because I got together with a guy, Eric Johnson, who's a friend of mine, and we kind of came up with, with the idea behind the song. And then he lives on Gabriel Island, so I spent an afternoon with him just kind of coming up with the germ of the idea. But then we were, like, emailing each other's ideas Asking each other to look at maps and <laughs> things. Oh. Uh, it was a bit of a geographic song. So that that was kind of the weirdest I've ever written, but it was it was good. I really enjoyed it. But the, the whole thing of, you know, someone just sending you a set of lyrics going, put music to this, kind of mystifies me. So now you have all this worked out as to what you want to do and how you want to do it, and you have to go somewhere. Where was somewhere? Well, I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but we decided as a compromise between blues and being modern and this is early 90s we're going to go down to seattle was it grungy at that point well it was still grungy but oh it was one of those things of record companies trying to chase um the fad chase the fad and just being a couple steps behind but at the end of the day um i had a good time so why don't we talk about that during part two scott that's a capital idea Part two, coming up at some point. I'm Scott James. He's David Gogo. This has been David Gogo's Soulbender podcast. To stay up to date, follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm